Well, please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. As you may recall, Jesus has recently transitioned from his public ministry in the region of Galilee and is now headed towards Jerusalem. Last week, we considered uh, their, he and his disciples' short visit to a certain village, and they were hosted by two sisters, Mary and Martha. And this evening, we are clued in on a, a lesson that Jesus gives to his disciples on how we are to pray. So Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. Please pay careful attention, for this is the word of our God. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And Jesus said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. For we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And Jesus said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this evening. Well, when we are seeking to develop a new skill, a new habit, or if we're just trying something new, we want to learn from the best. When we see skill, we take notes, don't we? We are intuitively creatures of imitation. Many of the things that we now know how to do were taught to us by watching someone else do, them, do it uh, before us. In our own day and age, it, uh, we have the luxury if we are trying to do something new or trying to develop a new, new skill or habit, we can pull out our phones and, and uh, look for a video on YouTube where someone is walking through the steps of whatever it is that we are trying to undertake. But I think we all would recognize that having someone physically present with us 
showing us how to do a certain task or, or skill and being willing to ask or a- answer our particular questions is preferable, much preferable than that online option. Well, in our passage before us, the disciples who have been with Jesus for some time now, they have noticed that Jesus quite often goes off by himself and he prays. And Jesus' prayers are effective. They do something. Remember in in the recent context, uh, the transfiguration, Jesus and the disciples, a a short segment of his disciples, go up this mountain and Jesus prays and what happens shortly thereafter? Moses and Elijah show up. This great cloud overshadows them and the voice of God the Father speaks and says that this is the greater Moses that all of God's people are to listen to. Disciples have picked up on this. Jesus knows how to pray. Let's ask him how to pray. Lord, teach us to pray. Lord, we know that John John the Baptist, who's a great prophet, nothing like you, but he's a great prophet, he taught his disciples how to pray. Why don't you teach us? Teach us how we can truly pray to this holy God. So this passage before us is, is quite wonderful. We have the opportunity to listen in to a lesson on prayer from the Son of God himself, which, yes, was given to the disciples in the first century, but also, by extension, is given to us today. Lord, teach us to pray. This evening, I'd like us to focus our minds and hearts on on three main points. First, we'll consider how, uh, in a bit more detail, this statement by the disciples, Lord, teach us to pray. And hopefully we'll see the necessity that we all have to be lifelong learners in this area. Then second, we'll consider how we are to pray purposefully. And third, we are to pray boldly. Let's consider this statement. Lord, teach us, teach us to pray. Well, Jesus responds to this, this great a statement and request of the disciples by reciting what has been traditionally known as the Lord's Prayer. Now this version of the Lord's Prayer in, in Luke's Gospel is a bit more abbreviated than the version we get in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 6. But nonetheless, it's a very helpful tool to teach us how we are to pray. This Lord's Prayer that is given before, given to us here in, in Luke chapter 11 is meant to be recited. Jesus says, when you pray, say these words. Jesus wants his people to actually recite the words of the Lord's Prayer. And this is something that we do each Lord's Day in our corporate worship service. However, this prayer also serves as a model, a guide, a template of sorts to guide all of our other prayers, all of our extemporaneous prayers. If you think about every one of these petitions, there's many things that could be prayed for under each one of them. Your kingdom come. Many things that we can pray in the specific context of our own lives and related to that petition and so on and so forth. So it serves both as a a prayer to be recited and as a model, a guided template for all of our other prayers. 
This is why the ancient church, from the very beginning of the post-apostolic era, as it drafted catechisms, catechisms are just another, um, another word for instruction, it recognized that its people, its youth, its children needed to learn how to pray. And so every, virtually every catechism includes an exposition on the Lord's Prayer. What each one of these petitions means to help guide the people of God in their prayer lives. You'll notice that the petitions of the Lord's Prayer here include the hallowing of God's name, the coming of his kingdom, and then our real needs. Provision, pardon, and protection. Thus, there's two main categories of the Lord's Prayer. It begins with God and his priorities. His name, his kingdom. And then secondarily, it addresses us and our real needs. Provision, pardon, protection. This in itself is instructive as it teaches us that the emphasis the place in which we should begin when it comes to our prayer life is God, not us. God's priorities should consume our prayers. If you're like me, I think we all recognize our temptation is not to do this. Our temptation is either to not pray, or if we do pray, we pray only for the, the present crises in our life, and then maybe if we have some time at the end, of the year will pray for the kingdom of God. That's our natural tendency, isn't it? Therefore, I think we all can admit that we need to be continually instructed in how we should pray. Because our natural tendency is not to follow this model, this template. We may ask, well, how are we instructed today? In the 21st century, those gathered here in this midst, how are we instructed in our own prayer lives? We, of course, don't have Jesus physically with us like the disciples did to have sessions of Q&A with him, to give him our, our personal and particular questions and, and struggles when it comes to, to praying. So how do we learn how to pray? The answer is, of course, through his word, as we encounter the Lord's Prayer, but more broadly, all of God's Word, which is a declaration of His will. But more specifically, one way in which Jesus, through His Word, instructs, teaches, catechizes us in our prayer life is in moments like this. The corporate worship, the gathering of the people of God on Sundays. Corporate worship the Lord's Day liturgy, it's meant to set the tone for the rest of the week. This is how the Christian church has historically understood Sundays. For instance, the ministry of the Word is meant to set the tone for your family and personal Bible reading. As you hear each week the distinction between the law and the gospel, as we read the law and then hear the declaration of pardon. You are taught as you open up your Bibles throughout the week to distinguish between the commands of Scripture and the promises of Scripture. As you hear sermons week in and week out, you are taught that every time we open up our Bibles, we should have an ear and an eye to see Christ. All of the Bible 
points to Christ. And so the ministry of the word on Sundays not only is meant to edify you in the moment, but also instruct you so that you can read your own Bibles throughout the week more profitably. The same is true with corporate prayer. If you pay attention to the pastoral prayer that I pray each Lord's Day, you'll you'll notice that each week I pray for the universal church. I pray for a specific missionary in our own federation who's serving uh, the church. I pray for our planting church, the Linden URC, and our own work here in Gig Harbor. That is to say, I'm praying for the advancement of the kingdom of God and the hallowing of God's name, both here and abroad. I pray for, ordinarily, civil government, our elected officials who serve us in in the civil domain. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 that we are to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. Now, I oftentimes hear a lot of grumbling about those who are serving us in, in civil government, but how many of you actually pray consistently for our elected officials? Do you grumble more or pray more for those who are our elected officials? Paul says we are to pray. Kings and all who are in high positions. We pray for our bodily needs, that is to say our daily bread. The physical concerns of those gathered in our small congregation here. We pray for our souls, the spiritual needs that we all have, our sanctification, assurance of God's pardon and, and, guarding, and being guarded and protected from the attacks of the evil one. We recite the Lord's Prayer. We pray a, a written prayer of confession, which is a, a guide, a template on how we are to confess our sins how we are to think about sin and who we are as depraved human beings. Thus, the Lord's Day liturgy teaches us how to pray, the types of things we should pray for. It sets the tone. It sets the tone for our, our prayers personally and with our families. And this is why the greatest predictor of Christian growth over the long haul that is to say, over the years, over the decades, is not necessarily what you do in your own private prayer closet, but your faithful attendance at a good local church. Because it's the church that is uh, the mother, as as Cyprian, the, the great church father, said, the mother of all Christians. The church is what shapes and molds us over the years and the decades. What I mean by this is not that the church is infallible or stands above the word of God, but as the word comes in the context of the, the gathered saints, it instructs us. It, 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 it creates faithful Christians. This is why the local church is so important. It teaches us. teaches us how to read our Bibles. teaches us how to pray. You know, so often today, you know, our culture is changing whereby... Very few people actually live in the place in which they were born. We live in a very transient culture and, and era. Many people will move many times throughout their life. And the trend, I think, today, especially among evangelicals, is when they think about relocating, it's you know, first and foremost about a job, a location, maybe the politics of that state, a neighborhood, a house, the school. But the bottom of the list is the church. Is there a good local church in my area? when really that should be at the top of the list. Is there a good local church that I can be plugged into, that my kids can be plugged into, because the church is the mother 
the one who shapes, molds us as faithful Christians. So Jesus teaches us. He teaches us to pray through his word, but specifically through his word as it comes in the context of moments like this. Lord, teach us. Teach us to pray. Let's now move on and consider how Jesus teaches us to pray purposefully. Purposefully. And here we're going to be focusing our attention a bit more on the on the petitions of, of this Lord's Prayer. As I mentioned, the Lord's Prayer can be broken up into two main headings. God and us. God's priorities and our real needs. And our prayer should reflect something of this structure, where God is indeed the priority. You'll see first that we are to pray, hallowed be your name. Now, names have to do with reputation. In our own colloquial speech, we we oftentimes use the phrase, to have a good name. And I grew up in a a small uh, community in the Midwest, and a community where no one really moved in or moved out, and families who lived there generally were uh, generationally rooted. That is to say they had uh, many generations before them that lived in that community. And so their last name meant something. Before... You, as a boy, really create any sort of reputation yourself. You already had a stigma and reputation. It might be positive, it might be negative because of your family, your extended family. Our names mean something. They have to do with our reputation. And so when we pray, hallowed be your name, we're praying that God who has given himself this dignified name has bestowed it with all honor and glory. We're asking that he would defend his honor, defend the reputation of this hallowed name. One way in which God's name is hallowed in in this world is when God's people praise and worship him. When more and more people come to bow their knee before God as creator and, and savior. We also are praying for the second coming of Christ. When everyone will hallow the name of God in the new heavens and the new earth. We also instructed to pray, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Now again, what is, where do we find the kingdom of God in this age? Well, primarily we find it in the church. So we're praying that God would continue to advance his church here on earth. We're praying that God would continue to to raise up more and more faithful, local, and healthy churches who seek to preach the gospel, who seek to administer the sacraments that Jesus himself has instituted, who seek to exercise church discipline, that is to say, who, who actually practice membership, That is to say, people submitting themselves to a particular body of elders and elders who actually care for a particular body of people. That's what we're praying. Your kingdom come. Let me ask you, how often do you pray? Do you pray specifically that God's kingdom would come here on earth? How often do you pray for those of you who have been visiting for any number of time or even are members of this group, praying for this work? that God's kingdom would come in our community, that God would continue to bless the labors of this work, that a a faithful 
confessionally reformed church would be established, particularized in an area like Western Washington. How amazing it would be if we all committed to pray diligently and persistently for this work. Your kingdom come. This also is a prayer for the second coming. Because when will God's kingdom fully come? Well, not until the return of Christ. In the new heavens, the new earth, when everything will be holy, there won't be that distinction between the sacred and the secular. Everything will be the kingdom of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the effects of praying and letting our prayers be consumed with the priorities of God, that is to say, his name being hallowed and his kingdom coming, is that we begin to live more and more like a pilgrim people. You know, one of the temptations for us as conservative Christians in the current cultural climate, cli- uh, climate in which we live, which is really the end of Christendom, that is to say the end of, of a confessional state, that, yes, that, that died officially with the founding of our country, but cultural Christianity, that was, that's been present for much of the history of of, of our nation. Well, that's coming to an end. And the temptation for us as conservative Christians is to want, want to run away from this identity of a pilgrim. We, want to, we don't want to feel like a pilgrim. We don't want to feel like a stranger or an alien in the midst of a, a secular society who looks upon us with hostility. We don't want that. We don't want to be accused of of an atheist like the early Christians were because we did not bow down to the gods of this culture. We don't want to be accused of of cannibalism as we eat the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ as the early Christians were also accused of. We don't want to be in Israel and Babylon. We want to be Israel and Jerusalem. But Peter, in 1 Peter 2, he He's thinking of what identity, you know, what identity should I give a new covenant Christian? And know what he says? He points to Israel in Babylon. He says, yes, that's who you are as a new covenant Christian. You're going to live as a stranger, an exile, a pilgrim in a strange land. And so when we're praying, when our prayers are consumed with the kingdom of God, with the hallowing of his name, we, we begin to recognize that his name is not hallowed. His kingdom has not perfectly come. We are not in our homeland. We live on this side of the return of Christ. The second part of the Lord's Prayer has to do with our real needs. Notice that. Our real needs. Not our wants, maybe our our desires, but our real needs. We are to pray for daily bread, or, or you could say we are to pray for provision. I love how the Westminster Shorter Catechism explains what we mean by this petition. It says that we are praying for a competent portion of the good things in this life and and, and the ability to enjoy them. A competent portion of the good things in this life. We also are praying for pardon, or you could even say assurance of God's pardon. And praying that this, this assurance of God's pardon would then motivate us to forgive the transgressions and offenses of those against us. We're also praying for protection. 
protection from the evil one who is indeed prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. devour. We're to pray, pray for protection. How many of you pray? I mean, we all, we all have our own struggles. We all have our own vices, areas where we need to grow. How many of you actually pray specifically for your own sanctification? Your own, your own areas in which God is calling you to grow, to put off the old man and put on the new man. We are to pray specifically for our sanctification. So the Lord's Prayer answers the what question. What are we to pray? But what about the how question? Well, this passage concludes as Jesus tells us how we are to pray. The manner of our prayer. In verses 5 through 13, Jesus' main point is that we are to pray boldly. We are to pray boldly. And he tells us this parable of a a friend. And um, he says, you know, imagine that you you have a, a friend who comes to you, and this friend has just gotten done with a long journey, and he comes to your door and he asks for bread, three loaves of bread. And we have to remember in that context, bread, uh, food was not as readily available as it is for us now. Ordinarily, people would make just enough bread for the day, and then the next day they would start over. So coming at midnight likely means you don't have a lot of excess food. But nevertheless, the sojourner comes to your door and, and wants three loaves of bread. And you want to help this person, and so you go to your next door neighbor. At midnight, you knock on their door and ask for three loaves of bread. Well, this neighbor isn't too happy. It's midnight, he was sleeping, and, and moreover, oftentimes in that culture, people, families all slept in the same mat together, in the same room. So if you wake up the master of the household, the master of the household goes and rummages for bread, what's going to happen? Everyone in the house is going to wake up, and this neighbor is thinking to himself, what are you doing? I'm not waking up all of my children, my family, who is sleeping soundly. It's midnight. And our text says that this neighbor doesn't grant you the re- this request because you are his friend, but rather it says because of your impudence. Impudence. Your neighbor grants you these, these three loaves. Now this word impudence does not mean persistence. Rather, it means shamelessness. It means defying the the norms of society or convention. And that's that's what you would be doing in this instance. You'd be going at midnight, waking your neighbor up and asking for bread. You have to have a little sense of shamelessness to do that. That's a bold thing to do, is it not? And, your na- and the neighbor recognizes, well, if this person is coming at midnight, this must be quite urgent. I will request, I will give him the request that he, he wants. And so Jesus' second example we see at the, the end of our passage is that of a father and a child. He says, what parent among you, what father among you, if, if your child asks for bread, would give a, a, a serpent or an egg would give a, a scorpion? The point of the parable is, as the, in the basic intuition of most parents is to give their children good things and to protect them from danger. It goes against the grain of how God made us to try to put our kids in harm's way and deny them every good thing. 
So both of these parent, uh, parables are arguments from the lesser to the greater. There's a common way to argue as a rabbi in that day and age. And, and Jesus is saying, if, if your neighbor was willing to give you bread at midnight when he was grumpy, how much more will your good and gracious Heavenly Father give you the request of your heart? You know, if evil parents know how to provide good things for their children, as we read in verse 13, how much more will your Heavenly Father give you the Holy Spirit? We all know a child can ask things of their father that really no one else can. So the point of these parables is that we are to pray, we are to pray boldly, shamelessly as it were. With confidence, as we read in Hebrews chapter 4, approach God and his throne of grace. And why can we do this? Because we invoke the name of Jesus. That is the basis for this boldness, the basis for this shamelessness, as it were, this impudence. As I was reading this, uh, this week, preparing for the sermon, I, I came across a helpful illustration of this point by by a certain author, and he, he was talking about how he was at a, a Christian conference at one, at one time in his life, and this well-known speaker had just gotten done speaking, and uh, many people lined up to, to, talk to, that, to talk to him, introduce themselves to him, and as, as is quite common, this speaker gave very short, trite, and somewhat insincere responses as he was just trying to get through this long line of people. Well, this author that I was reading, as he approached this well-known speaker, he mentioned that they have a mutual friend. And at, uh, upon hearing this, this speaker's eyes lit up and he gave the author that I was reading attention that he had given no other person that day. Because they had a connection. They had a mutual friend. In a similar way, when we invoke the name of Jesus in our prayers, something changes. God is no longer our judge, but he is our Heavenly Father. And as our Heavenly Father, he delights to hear, answer all of our prayers. And thus, our passage gives us then these imperatives. You'll notice that we are called to ask, seek, knock boldly in the name of Jesus. But what are we to be asking for? What are we to be seeking for? It's a good question, isn't it? Because there's a great promise attached to these. Whatever you ask, you will receive. Whatever you seek, you will find. When you knock, the door will be open. That's a, that's a promise. So what should we be asking for? We go back to the content of the Lord's Prayer. It's when we pray in line with the Lord's Prayer, and more broadly, the will of God revealed in, in God's Word, that's when we can have confidence that whatever we ask, we will receive. Whatever we seek, we will find. Older writers oftentimes spoke about arguing with God in prayer. Which is to say, uh, we are essentially telling God why what we have asked for seems to be for the best and in light of what we know God's own goals to be. Because if we're praying for something that has no foundation in the Word of God, we shouldn't have much confidence that that's a prayer that will be answered. 
However, if we're praying something that is in line with the will of God and God's word, that's something that we can have confidence in. So I encourage you, get in the habit in your own prayer lives. When when you're making a petition, ground it in God's word. Lord, I I pray that you would grant me or so-and-so acts for you say in your word. Or when you're reading through scripture, turn what you're reading in scripture into petitions, requests. That way you're ensuring that you're praying according to the way that Jesus tells us to pray. And you can have confidence that when you ask, you will receive. When you seek, you will find. Of course, we don't infallibly know the will of God, but we do know the will of God as it's revealed to us in the Word. Well, one of the great blessings of developing a prayer life according to the the dictates of this passage is that we, in the words of, of one theologian, acquire the habit of making God our refuge in all of our needs as if he were the only haven of safety. Make a habit of making God our haven of safety. And one of the reasons why I believe that Paul in Philippians chapter 4 says that in times of anxiety, we are to pray, and says that when we do this, we will experience the peace of God guarding our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I believe that what Paul is saying is that what anxiety is, is essentially us believing the lie that we are autonomous and self-sovereign over our life. We begin to believe the lie that we are called to, to carry the burden of running our own lives or the lives of, of our loved ones or those around us. And that's a burden that we can't bear and we never were meant to bear. And what happens when we pray, in the very act of prayer, we renounce our autonomy, our self-sovereignty, and recognize God to be the creator, the sustainer of all things. And that's why Paul can say, the peace of God will then guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Recognition that's not all up to to us, but this is a burden that rests upon God, that's when peace is floods our minds, our hearts, and consciousness. I don't know about you, but whenever I read and and hear God's word on this topic of prayer, it it feels quite convicting. I think we all can recognize that we are negligent in this area, in this area of praying according to the way that Jesus himself has, has taught us. In fact, as I was studying and preparing this, this passage this week, I, I felt quite negligent in this area. And part of my job description is to pray. And while we need to hear this imperative to pray, to pray rightly, to pray diligently, to pray boldly, the great blessing of the Christian life, of the Christian faith, I should say, is that your security and the effectiveness of your life does not depend upon your prayer life, but the prayer life of Jesus Christ. Remember, remember that good news that we heard earlier in the service, that declaration of pardon, where Jesus himself says that I pray for all of my people, all of my sheep. I pray for them. And Jesus' prayers are always answered because he prays in perfect conformity to the will of God. 
We know that Jesus prays that our faith will not fail, as he says to Peter. We know that Jesus prays that that good work which he's begun in each and every one of us will come to completion at his second coming. We know that Jesus prays that we will make it to his return and experience that great resurrection of the body. These things will happen. So yes, become a lifelong disciple and and learn how to pray from Jesus himself. Yes, pray purposefully, pray boldly, but never forget that Jesus himself prays specifically for you. Let us pray.